the Carillion collapse. We'll explore why nothing will actually change as a result of the giant firm's failure. Plus, Labour's internal power grab goes on. And what's this? A racism row in UKIP? Surely not. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Welcome to the latest podcast. A little later on, we will dive into the friendly world of internal Labour Party politics and the rather more unsavoury world of the UKIP leader's somewhat complex love life. But first of all, let's talk about Carillion, because it is possible you had never even heard of Carillion until this week. It handled any number of essential services, but unless you worked for it or relied on it in some other way, there was no particular reason to know that it even existed. Then it went bust, and close to 20,000 jobs were suddenly threatened. Well, I say suddenly, though between July and November of last year, it issued three profit warnings and its share price fell significantly. And while all this was happening, the government and other agencies too continued to hand Carillion lucrative contracts for the delivery of vital public services. Now people have been threatened with having their wages stopped. The fire brigade put on standby to deliver school meals and thousands of other firms themselves working for Carillion and in many cases owed a great deal of money have been left wondering if they'll be able to afford to pay their own bills this month. Uh, Robert Meakin joins me um, as usual. Robert, Theresa May said this week that the government kept signing contracts with Carillion because if it didn't, then the company would have collapsed even sooner. The problem with that being that it adds weight to this theory that the government was giving them these contracts even though the firm was in trouble because it was deliberately trying to keep it afloat, which raises the other issue of whether the government deliberately put people's jobs and livelihoods at risk in pursuit of a political aim to farm out large sections of the public sector to a private company that in the end did collapse under the weight of its own debts. Yes, I mean, the evidence doesn't look very good as, as it stacks up. I mean, the, the signs were, were clear, certainly not for all to see, but certainly for the government to see many, many months ago. You just had to look at the, the state of their, their, the alarming profit warnings, the fact they had spiralling debts of more than uh, 50% since, I believe, uh, the end of last year, you know, the pension black hole. It was all clear to see that all was not well, the things were unravelling fast, but they continued to prop it up. Was this for cynical political reasons? Were they just trying to avoid you know, the political embarrassment and damage of it collapsing? As you say, is it down to their, 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 their fundamental belief that such services should be farmed out to such private companies? All that is currently up for debate. It certainly smacks of a government that rather, a government that rather lost control of a desperately important and now damaging situation. Well, the alternative explanation isn't much better. It's that there was just this colossal failure of oversight. There's supposed to be what's called a crown representative. It's meant to be the government representative who who checks on what these big private finance companies are doing with public money. But in the case of Carillion, that role was vacant for several months last year at the same time that some of those profit warnings were being issued. Now, again, the government has said this week, Theresa May has said this week, we were just a customer of Carillion. But Carillion was engaged in behaviour that the Institute of Directors described as highly inappropriate. Like, for example, it changed the rules to make it a lot harder to claw back bonuses. Now, that's the kind of thing you would have thought decent oversight would have picked up on, along with the profit warnings, along with all the other issues with the, the debts and the pension deficits. Yeah, and I think it also... <laughs> rather cuts to the, the, the real heart and moral of the argument when she referred to them being a, the government being a customer 
of Carillion. You know, this is what Carillion, the services that Carillion provided goes to the very heart of day-to-day life in this country, whether it be schools, whether it be the hospitals, whether it be the, the railway projects. And when you hear language like that customer, that really divides the nation for a, a good percentage. It's, it's not offensive at all. It's, it's, uh, it's perfectly agreeable. That's the market we live in. But for another significant percentage of the country, that's a quite alien and almost offensive phrase that you know, such, such people people are uh, have, have such an integral role in such crucial day-to-day services and you know and now you see there's this this big big divide between what the, the Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party is saying the way he would want to go and what the Conservative part the Conservative Party is saying for many many years we've lived with this consensus that you know that private companies were of course brought in to, to run public services that was accepted by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when they were Labour Prime Ministers there certainly was no bigger fan of private finance deals than Gordon Brown. When he was Chancellor, he loved these big private finance deals. It meant that he got to show off new hospitals, new schools without spending vast amounts of public money, without adding to public debts. The people running those public services were saddled with making huge payments for decades and decades, at the end of which they didn't own any of the buildings. You know, we we build our our hospitals and, and some of our schools and things like that now in the same way that we have Spotify accounts. You pay month by month but at the end of it if you stop paying all that music vanishes you never actually own anything and it's exactly the same thing now with these big public assets but the problem is you can't reverse it now it's it's far too late if you wanted to take all of the things that not just Carillion but all these other big private companies do and bring them back into the public sector the way that Labour is now saying you should do well stand by for a massive increase in tax because there isn't enough public money around to pay that money out now that's the whole point behind private finance deals is that instead of paying for it all up front you, you pay for it the way we buy cars and the way you pay a mortgage absolutely the, the reality is of course, it's a it's an attractive argument to a lot of people that Corbyn is presenting. Uh, obviously, I mean he he's on the front foot here. When you when you see something like Carillion collapse in the way it has done, you see the hypocrisy of people who are running the company. Uh, of, of course, there are going to be people saying, "Well, yes, this should be dragged back to the public sector. We support the Labour leader." There's great weight to that moral argument, but as you say, the devil is in the detail and the practicalities of that. This 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 process has gone on for a long, long, long time. Time, just what sort of economic hit would the country take if we were dragged back to having nationalisation of everything? Right now, I have to say, of course, there's, there's plenty of appetite for it. Uh, there, there are people who say who lived through, you know, the, when the public sector owned everything you know, in the 1970s. People will say, trust me, it wasn't a glamorous or exciting time at all. There were all manner of problems. But for another generation, when someone like Jeremy Corbyn says this is the way forward, this this racket has to end, he really strikes a chord. Well, there's an argument, you know, if the public sector is so slow and so inefficient and so crap, how come it always ends up having to pick up the pieces after big prices? private sector cock-ups like this one. And and clearly there is something inherently wrong in the way this system works, because here is Carillion, this enormous company building roads, building hospitals, building schools, running prisons, managing the housing that tens of thousands of military personnel live in. And yet, apparently, it was cost overruns on three contracts that brought it to its knees. And it brought it to its knees because... In order to get the contracts, they put in these ludicrously low bids that they can't sustain with no margin for error, which means the slightest problem means they start losing money. And so this company 
turns out to be a bit of a house of cards, that it's been sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul for God knows how long. And in the end, it caught up with it. And you cannot arrange the delivery of major public services in that way. And the damage it has done to all a uh, number of, of small companies who are contractors as well, who have been left owed you know, considerable sums by Carillion, because Carillion, of course, by, just by what you were saying, surprise, surprise, they were very late payers or they didn't pay at all for work that got contracted out. So you know, the, the, the damage goes down many rungs of the ladder as well. Now, attentive listeners will remember that last time we mentioned a big internal vote of Labour Party members. Well, they have now appointed three new members of the party's ruling body, and as predicted, all three jobs went to Jeremy Corbyn loyalists, which has tipped the balance on the National Executive Committee firmly in his favour. Now, among those newly elected members is John Landsman, who's the founder of Momentum. He's always struck me as being someone who's very much open to hearing all shades of opinion in a quiet and respectful manner. It didn't take long for them to make their first move either, replacing the long-standing chair of a panel that deals with disciplinary measures. Now, this, Robert, means that in future, if you make a complaint inside the Labour Party about bullying or trolling, things like that, it goes to a committee which is now chaired by a director of momentum, which kind of matters when often it is hardcore Corbynites who are accused of the bullying and the trolling, and often they either are members of, or connected to in some way, momentum. And it was reported that one of the first acts of the committee under this new chair was to refuse to sanction further investigation of some claims of anti-Semitism and bullying. That is a weird signal to send out. God alive, they didn't wait very long, did they, to get going? No, it was a a huge moment in Labour's uh, recent history this week. I mean, I know it won't have had a lot of people on the edge of their seats, but the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's supporters now... You know, officially have technical control over the inner workings of the Labour Party for the first time is, as I say, it's it's hugely significant. They've been chipping away, obviously, the, the last couple of years. Now, we know that, the, that there's been all manner of internal problems for the Labour Party recently, but anti-Semitism clearly being a very prominent issue. The challenge now is, you say, are they really going to start just brushing all this stuff under the carpet? It has to be said that the early signs are not good. Now, this is something that we've talked about quite a lot, that the the project, as it were, and they would hate the use of the word project because Tony Blair used that word. But the, the project is not just about Jeremy Corbyn. It's about a fundamental shift in the Labour Party to the left and making that shift permanent by making sure that the party machinery has gone in the same direction. Now, Jeremy Corbyn's supporters would say this is where the party membership wants Labour to be. Jeremy Corbyn has won two leadership elections. He's done far better than expected in the general election. Even some of his most fervent critics on his own back benches would admit that he has won the right to reshape the party. But... The people who are now saying that what they call the Blairites, the modern, the, the moderates, whatever you want to call them, the people are saying these people should be subjected to reselection ballots, should be forced out, don't belong in the Labour Party, conveniently forget that the Labour Party of Tony Blair, of Neil Kinnock, of Gordon Brown was at least enough of a broad church to contain someone like, say, Jeremy Corbyn, who voted against his own party line hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. There is a certain hypocrisy in saying only 
the purity of Corbynite thought is now allowed inside the Labour Party and everyone else has to be thrown out. Yeah, I mean, on the on the flip side of that, certainly when Tony Blair was in ascendancy as leader of the Labour Party, that the left were treated as as as, as, as outsiders, as you know, eccentric figures. They certainly weren't welcomed in on the whole into the into the inner sanctum of the Labour Party, Labour government. But with the exception of militant in the 1980s, with the exception of of that of the issue around militant, what they weren't was thrown out of the Labour Party. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. So this is a far while while there was very little room for promotion or advancement for people of the left in, in the previous generation of the Labour hierarchy. As you say, this is now a more extreme version and potentially a more sinister one. I mean, the Labour Party. We keep on hearing this phrase about it being a broad church. Well, that yeah, now we will we will see. In over these um, weeks and months to come, my my suspicion is it's going to get pretty ugly. I think we could see many, well, potentially yeah, a good few moderate Labour MPs facing the guillotine. Corbyn, I think the brutal reality has the power to do it. I think there, as we we've said many times before. That huge number of Labour MPs who didn't expect Corbyn to perform at all at a general election, who thought they'd finally at some stage soon see the back of him, are stuck in this strange political purgatory. They've got nowhere to go. In the poll, still, it's pretty much neck and neck. Labour and Conservative at around about 40%. And that's why a lot of people uh, in Labour, particularly those who are very supportive of Jeremy Corbyn, say this is the highest poll rating we've had in donkey's years. We are on the brink of going into government. I know I've said this before, I am not sure this is correct. I've been having a look at some past election results. Now, 1997, the Labour landslide, 400 and odd seats marching across the country. Would they have had as big a landslide without the Liberal Democrats doing as well as they did? Because there are parts of the UK, particularly the Southwest and along the South Coast, where for a long time the Lib Dems were the opposition to the Conservatives. Now, look, Labour hate the Lib Dems. I know that. But what the Lib Dems did that was very helpful to Labour was that they kept reducing the number of Tory seats by taking dozens of Tory seats off the Tories in places where Labour will never, ever be in contention to win, in places like Devon and Cornwall, along the south coast in Hampshire, places where Labour are not going to pick up seats. The Lib Dems were picking off Tories. That reduced the number of Tory seats. That made it easier for Labour to overtake them. Now, the Lib Dems are not reviving. They're stuck on 6 7% in the polls. They're stuck on a dozen or so MPs for the foreseeable future. So for Labour to win an election... Bear in mind, they're still 64 seats short of majority at the moment. For Labour to win an election, they've got to start winning seats in those areas, in the South, in the Midlands, places where they've not been in contention even under Tony Blair. So I just wonder how receptive are those places to the Jeremy Corbyn message? Now, you can reply Canterbury or Kensington from the last general election, but they have to be able to do that 60-odd times over in the next one to get a majority of one. Yeah, we are reduced to a great deal of guesswork, of course, presently. Yeah, just take the state of the Conservative Party presently. I mean, it, it, they have looked as, as weak as they have done for a long, long time, ever really since the uh, that poor general election result uh, last summer. Are they really going to continue to be this mediocre 
you know, at the moment we have a, a caretaker prime minister in place who's going to be pushed off the cliffs of Dover, you know, sometime in the not too distant future when Brexit presumably is in some way resolved, possibly before. My feeling is that they will get stronger. Who knows who their leader could be? So that certainly can't be taken for granted. The Tories going to remain for the taking as they appear right now. And secondly, as you say, with Jeremy Corbyn, you know, impressive uh, defeat for the Labour Party at the last election, but still a defeat. Can they go much further? They they absolutely you know, pro- proved the critics wrong, outperformed all expectations. But have they hit their ceiling? Well, let's not imagine that Labour's the only party where people can do or say stupid or offensive things. Consider Ben Bradley, the new Conservative vice chairman for young people. So new, he had barely completed a week in his job when it emerged that in 2012, he wrote a blog suggesting that people on benefit should perhaps, on balance, stop breeding. Uh, This chap, Robert, appointed last week to show the Tories are down with the kids and in touch with the generation that's found Jeremy Corbyn so appealing they chant his name wrote in this blog that there were about a vast sea of unemployed wasters and said the people who can't afford to have more children shouldn't be having them. They should be taking advantage of a free NHS vasectomy to eliminate the risk of accidentally expanding their benefit-claiming family. Now, look, as usual, once these remarks were unearthed, he apologised. He insisted he'd learned a lot since 2012. Now, last time out, we pointed out the danger of ploughing through everything everybody's ever written or said. But I'm now beginning to wonder, is there anybody in public life who hasn't said something ghastly at some stage? You're right. I mean, if we do, if we get into the territory of digging into everything and every single stupid phrase anyone might have uttered on Twitter, on a podcast, whatever, over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. We'd be screwed. We'd be screwed. Well, we, you know, I don't think we're going to be seeking election anytime soon. So, yeah, we, I, I'm wary of that. And I think it is unhealthy and that goes too far. I would also say, though, you, you, when, when you hear such you know, ridiculous and you know, repulsive comments like this, you do wonder about the calibre of people who are entering public life. You sometimes think we're not really getting the cream of the crop. That idiot Jared Amara from the Labour Party, another obvious example. By the way, another reward for our attentive listeners. In the last podcast, we questioned why Theresa May was doubling down her support for Toby Young when he would, we said, inevitably have to give up the university regulator job in the face of his past remarks. I think it was within about an hour of that podcast going online that Toby Young gave up his job as a university regulator. So, Well, he was listening. He was listening, clearly. He was listening. It was listening. And finally, after, you know, about three years, we got a prediction right. Yeah, bank that one. Bank that one. Now, having just praised ourselves, I need to offer an apology because when Henry Bolton was elected as UKIP's latest leader, and at least at the time of recording this podcast, he still is, we foolishly said it was pointless to even bother learning his name, as it would almost certainly be the last time we'd ever mention him. How were we to know that he would start some starry-eyed Christmas romance with a racist, which would send him charging back into the headlines? A racist specifically, uh, Robert, who was half his age and who had taken a particular dislike to to Meghan Markle, to Prince Harry's fiance. Now, Mr. Bolton was already on his third wife when he moved on to this woman, who has now been dumped for being too racist for him. And his rivals inside UKIP have used this to suggest that he should resign. To be fair, 
that is pretty much the only thing that UKIP members do these days is demand that their leaders resign. It does seem their moral outrage is far more about the fact that Henry Bolton left his wife for a younger woman rather than the awful racism. Yeah, and we were talking just a moment ago about the poor calibre of some elected representatives who, who, have, who have come onto the scene in, uh, in, in recent times. And of course, I mean, it, it times that by 20, 30 when it comes to UKIP. I mean, there's no doubting their former leader, Nigel Farage, the huge importance he's had and impact he's had on the political debate in recent years. It's doubtful they would have been even the referendum if it hadn't been for Nigel Farage-led UKIP. But underneath Nigel Farage love him or loathe him underneath that hugely charismatic and at times influential politician you've got to say there's a bunch of headbangers I mean it's proven time and time again now at the time of recording this as I say Henry Bolton remains the leader of UKIP there have been six UKIP leaders since the EU referendum in June of 2016 so Robert for a fabulous prize there isn't really a prize for a fabulous prize can you name those six leaders in order i will give you a start number one nigel farage i absolutely can't i can remember not all <laughs> not not all the straight the strange the strange gentleman from last year i have got to say I, I i can proudly say i don't remember most of their names not all of course i remember i remember the current one just about if this was who wants to be a millionaire it would be it would be pretty undramatic when i haven't got a clue mate right so number one nigel farage then Diane James. Diane James. She she lasted very briefly. Yes, eighteen days. Yeah. When she stood down, Nigel Farage came back. So number three, Nigel Farage. Oh, that's what's thrown me. The Farage factor. Okay. Yeah. Number four, Paul Nuttall. Um, yeah. You know, PhD. Uh, Doctor yeah. Paul Nuttall, PhD, who'd been to the moon and everything else. Yes. Number five. Steve Crowther. Oh, you'd have got me. I don't um... acting leader after Paul Nuttall resigned. Ah. Uh, he was he was there for about three months, followed since September last year by Henry Bolton. Pretty much everyone in UKIP has now had a go at being leader. Apart from those two men who wrestled each other at the European Parliament, one ended up unconscious. Yeah, and 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 the chap the chap who said a gay horse had attacked his dog. He he never quite made it. The, the gay horseist hasn't been given the leadership quite yet. No. Give him give him his chance though this this could be his golden opportunity i'd give him about a week probably yeah now we are nearly out of time and have barely had a moment to point out that it is a year this weekend since donald trump's reign of terror began he is marking this in the traditional manner by saying all kinds of horrible racist things maybe someone should introduce him to henry bolton's ex-girlfriend uh, the good news though robert is that he had his medical report this week and we were told that the the the, the president who likes to be in bed by half past six at night watching three televisions munching on a cheeseburger <laughs> is in excellent health he could do to drop a couple of pounds but otherwise he is apparently in excellent health his doctor said he could do with a little bit of cardiovascular exercise that wouldn't do him any harm now donald trump doesn't believe in exercise donald trump believes that people are like batteries with a finite amount of energy and the more exercise you do the the quicker you use up the energy so his doctor is is this is fake news he's working against him yeah and i don't think i don't think that the, the Donald, I suspect, isn't a man who probably suffers from great stress, to be honest. And certainly I heard recently about his uh, his work schedule as well, his daily work schedule, which, to be fair, was not was not that gruelling by the sounds of it. I mean, I think he has what he describes as executive time in inverted commas, which obviously is uh, being on Twitter, uh, watching television or being on 
anything else. So yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think you know, the, the workload of being the president is a thing that's going to see him off. Also, um, the, 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 his doctors revealed uh, that they had no concerns about his cognitive abilities, no concerns that he was just Heaven perhaps forbid. you know mentally incapable of being the leader of the free world. And the test on which they made this decision was was pretty tough. They showed him a clock and they asked him what time the clock said. Then they showed him a picture of a lion uh, and asked him if he could recognise it. And then they asked him if he could remember what the first question was. And when he said, clock, they went, yeah, here are the nuclear codes. Leader of the free world. Nothing at all to worry about. Well, sleep well, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening. Don't forget you can get in touch via Twitter or Facebook at Party Games Pod, and the website is partygamespodcast.com. Until the next time, thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening as well. And for now, goodbye. Yeah.